0: Good morning. (coughs) My name is Jared Lawson. Let's pray. We will jump into our teaching this morning. Father, uh, we thank you that we can come and hear uh, truth from your word, that we're not walking through any specific text. Uh, I thank you that we can gather and hear about spiritual disciplines, that you have not just redeemed us and told us to figure it out, but you have again and again in your word guided us of how we might obey you, of how we might be conformed into the image of your glorious Son. And so I pray we, as we look at this specific discipline of self-examination that that would be the result, that we would hate sin, that we would long to spot it and pull it out of our hearts, that we might gaze upon your Son. There might, there might be no hurdles or no barriers Uh, in our sanctification as as your Spirit conforms us into his image. And so I just pray that you would be with us, that your Spirit would be uh, active among us, and that you would give us here a strong tool in that effort. And so I pray in your Son's glorious name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we have, in this semester, been walking through what we've been calling uh, applied theology, uh, which most of the lessons, not all of them, but a lot of them have been on Spirit. Disciplines, spiritual disciplines, things that we can do uh, to discipline our hearts to look to Jesus and be sanctified by the Spirit. And so today we're going to look at self-examination. If you were very studious and you got one of the the syllabi out there at the beginning of the semester, you'll notice it says introspection. Introspection. I changed that, and you'll see why here in a second, but self-examination, the discipline of looking into our own hearts to see what is there to remove sin and turn us to Jesus. So the five, kind of the overview, the five headings that we're going to walk through under this uh, discipline of self-examination are these, Very, very clear. What is it? What is it? Why do it? The danger of it. Who to look to when we're doing it and how to do it, the practical right there at the end. So what is it? What is self-examination? Why do we do it? What's the danger of it? Who to look at while we're doing it, and then how to do it. So let's look at that first one. If you want a kind of foundational biblical passage for this teaching, it would be this. Psalm 139, uh, those last two verses, verses 23 and 24, search me. Oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That cry, that prayer from the psalmist for God, the one who sees perfectly, see, search my heart, God, see if there's any sin there, if there's any grievous way in me, and then pull that out that I might walk in your paths walk in the way everlasting so my my kind of stab at a definition of self examination is this i can't remember if i put this in your notes or not but if i didn't just listen carefully self examination is the discipline of looking inward looking at your heart to examine your heart for the purpose of uprooting sin knowing temptation being aware of temptation turning to the lord and growing in Sanctification. So, the discipline of looking at your heart, examining your heart for uprooting sin, knowing temptation, turning to the Lord, and growing in sanctification. Several other biblical passages I just have listed there. I'll read a few of these where we're getting this idea of self examination. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimony. Psalm 119. Lamentations 3. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Job 13, Job crying out to the Lord, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sins. Second Corinthians 13, examine yourself. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, and, uh, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Galatians 6, last one I'll read. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So over and over and over again, we see in the scriptures this call to test our hearts, to examine our hearts, that we might not be deceived by the heart, right, that is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? So look, test, and examine that we might actually see clearly, see the way the Lord sees our hearts. So one of the reasons for this for us now, those who have been redeemed, uh, if you are a Christian, you live in this kind of already, not yet state. You have been declared righteous by Jesus, Jesus has already lived the perfect life on your behalf, died uh, the death that you deserve and I deserve on your behalf, and we get, he gets all of our sin, and we get all of his righteousness. The Father looks at us, sees his Son, and declares us righteous. So he already declares us righteous. It is finished, right? He's already done everything. This isn't a matter of justification. It's a matter of sanctification. We've been made new by his Spirit, Right? If anyone is in Christ, if anyone's a Christian, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. He's taken away your heart of stone. He's given you a heart of flesh. You've been born again. Right? John 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. The chains of sin have been broken. You're no longer a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. That's That's what's true of you now if you're a Christian. But we are not finished. We're not the finished work that we will be either at Christ's second coming or in glory. We're still in the flesh, if you will. So we have this kind of already not yet state about our lives. So a good picture of this is in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5. I love this text. If then you have been raised, notice that past tense, this is already true of you. If Then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Listen to this, for you have died and your life now, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Before we read the last verse, that's all that is true of you. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So notice that already, not yet. Your life is already hidden with Christ in God, but there is still earthly things in you, in your heart, that you must put to death. Therefore, we are left with this task of self-examination. We need to see what is actually earthly in our hearts in order that we might put it to death. Okay, so I don't want you to misunderstand. This isn't a, you need to pull out sin or else you won't, you know, be a Christian or be saved. Christ has already accomplished that work. This is not a matter of justification. This is a matter of sanctification, John Owen, uh, the great Puritan thinker who we'll be, will be quoting quite a bit, talks about, you don't kill sin so that you will be saved, so that you will be brought to life. Rather, you kill sin because you have already been brought to life. Okay, Don't miss that distinction. So we are in this life, this side of eternity at war. We still have hearts bent towards sin, we still live in the flesh, we still live in a world that is is broken with sin, and we still have an enemy who is very, very motivated to turn our eyes away from our Savior and back to our own sins. So therefore, there is no such thing as kind of coasting along in this Christian life. There is no such thing as praying a prayer, accepting Jesus, and then going back to whatever you're doing, pursuing the American dream, or whatever we like to do here in the Bible Belt where we say, eternity, check. I prayed a prayer when I was four. Now I'll go on to my dreams and my hopes and my visions. That does not exist biblically. There's no such thing as coasting. To quote uh, the great theologian Tom Callahan Sr. from Tommy Boy, you're either growing or you're dying. There ain't no third direction, okay? Okay or to quote John Owen again who I think Tom Callahan was quoting be killing sin or it will be killing you be killing sin or it will be killing you there there are your two options kill it or it will kill you. Okay, So John Owen, uh, again, in this idea, he spent a lot of time thinking about this, gives this kind of analogy of uh, a garden, your heart as this, as this garden. And weeds are growing up in the garden along with the good fruit and the flowers. And if you leave the weeds unattended, they will eventually choke out and take over the garden and choke out the beautiful flowers and fruits. And so we as good gardeners must, as we cultivate the good fruit, also pull out the weeds Okay, that's the motivation there. Pull out the weeds as we cultivate this good fruit. So, self examination, what we're going to do, to, or what we're looking at today, is kind of a gardening tool in your hand, if you will, to pull out the weeds as well as cultivate the good fruit, or a weapon in this kind of war that we're in this side of eternity. So, that's what it is. What is self examination? The act, the idea of pulling out these sinful weeds, cultivating the garden of your heart that it might produce the fruit of the Spirit. Next, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Uh, We exist primarily to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of man? What's the reason we exist? Glorify him and enjoy him forever. If you're a Christian, we want to be conformed into the image of our Christ, Christians, little Christs, we want to be conformed into His image, we want to glorify Him and we want to enjoy him. So self-examination is what pulls out anything that might hinder that effort, anything that might hinder that effort. So I've got to think four things here of why do we do it. Number one, we practice self-examination. We examine ourselves to kill sin that would hinder glorifying God and enjoying him. John Owen again talks about uh, we we are created quite simply for happiness found in communion with God. Joy in communing with God and what sin does is disorders and disrupts and destroys our communion with God. And so learning to kill the sin that seeks to kill your communion is absolutely vital for your joy in the Lord. And he actually wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin that if you just read the title, you think, okay, it's some sort of another Puritan, you know, legalist or moralism just trying to focus and smash sin. But what John Owen wanted to do in writing that book is not say, let's just focus on sin and let's just be legalists and just follow the right rules. He said, we're made for communion. This destroys our communion. Let's destroy this thing so that nothing would dare hinder our joyous life in the God we were made for. That's his motivation. And so that should be our motivation in looking for sin and killing it as well. There's a a mistake I think we make often when we think about uh, our sin, how we view our sin. We view kind of killing our sin in the same way we would view like getting in shape when people come to you and say, you know, there's this thing in your life, you kind of have the response of like, I know it, I know I should do it, I no, I'm so bad, I'll get around to it one day, right? Just like every response, anytime, you know, you know you should get in shape. I will one day, and then you view the people who are actually in shape as like those really going above and beyond. That's kind of how we view killing our sin. People who are militant in uprooting sin from their heart, you think, whoa, they are super holy. I wish I could be that way, but I'm just, you know, I'm not. You view it as this other thing which is a tragic, tragic view of your sin because sin is not just a light problem. You do not have a sin scratch that needs a Band-Aid. You have sin cancer that needs surgery. Be killing it or it will be killing you. This is an incredibly serious thing, which, by the way, the, the devil's first effort will be to say, not that bad, don't worry about it, let this... Grown lion, kind of walk around your house. It's a fun pet, right? Tigers are fun. You know, we all saw a fun documentary. Maybe we saw it a couple years ago. I don't know how long it's been. Right when COVID happened, Tiger King came came out, and everyone was like, "Tigers are sweet and fun." And then they bite your arm off, and you're like, "It's because they were provoked. It's not the tiger's fault." Or every every Shark Week, there's always some scientist that's like, "Sharks don't eat people. They think people are seals, and that's why they eat people." To which I respond, "I don't care." their motivation if it's eating me, right? Sin is not this nice thing. Oh, if you just leave it alone, right? It'll just sit there and swim around you. It wants to kill you. This is cancer. This is not just a scratch that needs a Band-Aid. So we must pull it out of our hearts. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So why do we do it? To uproot sin that would be in our hearts. Uproot sin that we know is there. Hopefully, we're, we're self-aware enough to know at least kind of the primary besetting sin of our life. If we're naturally arrogant, we just, if you know, you know, not in a like defensive way, but you just know, yes, I, I view other people as dumb and they just don't get it like I do. And you could hopefully in a, an ounce of humility admit that is your besetting sin. Or you're passive. You, you don't like confrontation, right? Or you're naturally fearful. You just stress when you watch the news every single night, right? You, you, there are sins that you are aware of. Self-examination, what self-examination does is takes, takes you out of the realm of kind of passive awareness, like, yeah, I know. I kind of fly off the handle every now and then. People should just learn not to cross me, right? Ridiculous. It takes you out of that realm of, of ridiculous passive awareness to actual action. I need to get this and put this sin to death. So it makes us aware of sins that we're aware of, but makes us actually active against it. Secondly, it makes us aware of sins that we are blind to, sins that we aren't aware of. So uh, many of us have sinful tendencies that we walk in actively that we are not aware of. Psalm 19 who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. There's faults you have that are hidden from your eyes. You do not know you have them, yet you're walking in them. OK? So one of the, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. One of the very things about sin is that it blinds you to the very sin. Sin blinds you to its very presence. St. Augustine prays this, this incredible prayer. Cleanse me, praying to God, cleanse me from my secret faults, O Lord. I fear to deceive myself, lest my sin should make me think that I am not sinful. Think about that. Sin not only is there and wants to kill you, it wants to make you unaware of its presence. And so self-examination helps us kind of hone in and see, okay, this is here. I didn't think this was here, but this is here. Uh, I worked with a a pastor years ago who was very missional, which is a good thing. And he had this line he would always say that uh, I don't care about seating capacity, how many people are here. I care about sending capacity, how many people we send out, which is great. Uh, But if the volunteers counting outside messed up, he would lose it. Okay? So I would go to him and say, hey, your words are great, but I think there's actually something that's true of your heart, which is you really, 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 really care about seating capacity because when you don't know that bit of information, you lose your mind, right? That's many of us. We walk in sin that we're not even aware of. Self-examination kind of puts a spotlight on it. How many of you that are married have said, have, have said something like this? I never knew how selfish I was until I was married. Probably a lot of you, okay? Okay. We got one honest person in the room, um, Keith. Uh, right? Okay. So for me, I did not say that because Claudia's awesome. But when I had two kids, when I had Harvey, when I had Jordan, oh my goodness, the selfishness reared its head like crazy. So I'm just now realizing I thought I had. You know, I don't struggle with that. Now I do, and I'm like, this has always been here. It's not like randomly I got randomly self. It's just been there, and it's just been dormant. And then the right circumstances, boom made it rear its ugly head, right? So self-examination makes us aware of things we know are there, things we maybe don't know are there, so that we can pull them out of the garden, okay? Maybe a painful thing, but again, remember the goal. These weeds aren't just ugly. They hinder, they destroy your communion with the God you were made to live for and live in light of and live in the joy of his presence, Okay, that is always the goal. So that's number one, be aware of sin, kill it. Number two, we practice self-examination. We examine ourselves to better resist temptation. Okay, so it's not just sin that's in your heart. It's being aware of kind of how you're wired so that when certain temptations come, you'll know I'm gonna be really weak against that one. And I, I might fall to that one. So I need to be on extra guard. Okay, so typically your greatest gifts are also going to be where you can sin the most. Okay, so imagine if you are knowledgeable, if you just have an incredible gift of knowledge, what's going to be the, probably uh, the temptation of the enemy? Arrogance, right? Trusting in your own knowledge. Right, You're not going to be very humble thinking, I'm a sinner saved by grace, because you've been able to operate in life just with a, a, a superior intellect. If you are a peacemaker, it's a good thing. Right, We'll see you in a few weeks in Matthew Blessed are those people, right? The peacemakers. But what might be the the temptation on the other side of that? Passivity. Maybe something that you should confront that for the sake of keeping the peace, you just kind of passively avoid. You see that? So so being aware of your heart. This is how I'm wired. Therefore, I might actually sin in these other areas should the right situation come. So uh, I talk a lot. So if you want to call this a gift, it's not really a gift communication is a gift which is helpful because i do this for a living you have to listen to me for like an hour every single week right and if i don't know my own heart and if i don't know uh, god's word i won't be aware of something like this proverbs 10:19 when words are many transgression is not lacking but whoever restrains his lips is prudent Okay, so if I'm just talking all the time unaware of, hey, many words typically equals many transgressions, I might not guard my tongue, and I might slander, and I might be quick to judge, I might be quick to do other things as well. Okay, so self-examination, knowing your heart, knowing how you're wired will help you actually fight temptation that might come, try and take one of your greatest giftings into the realm of sin. So you can know the situations and then kind of have a shield ready to go. Okay. Number three, we examine ourselves to help till the soil for the fruit, uh, the fruit of the spirit to bear fruit. So now we're in the realm of sanctification. Pulled out sin, being aware of temptation to sin, and now we're going into sanctification, Kind of till the soil as we, we've pulled out the weeds, now we're cultivating the the flowers, if you will. okay? So being self-examining uh, your own heart, uh, might help, uh, as a, as the pastor uh, of the church I grew up in would always say, put kindling around your heart. Right? Paul says, I watered Apollos, or I planted Apollos watered. God gave the growth. So self-examination can kind of till the soil for God to actually bring the growth of his spirit, that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness might all sprout while you're pulling out hate, depression, fear, things, things like that. So you are, uh, I'll give you an example. So again, if you think, you know, you could use your words to damage and to bless, right? We're in James now. Now, you've, you've prayed against, I, I, I'm pulling out the weeds of using my words to damage others. Now let's, let's, let's go towards the positive. Father, I pray that yes, you would guard my lips. I pray that I would just be a, a, a miraculous encourager, that you would just give me words to tell people right when they're at their lowest. That just points them to you. And, and I would be known for using my words to just bless people. People like being in my presence, not because I'm so awesome, but because I'm, just, I'm constantly pointing them to you. Transform this, this thing that, that brings so much damage and let it bring your blessing. You see that? So we're, we're out of the realm of the negative, moving towards the positive. Or, or uh, to use a biblical example, Acts 4. The early church, the spirit has fallen. The church is beginning to spread. Persecution is flooding in, right? They're getting beaten, told, quit talking about Jesus. Quit blaming us for killing this guy. So what's the temptation? Being quiet, being silent when boldness is required. And so look at what uh, the church in Acts prays. What do they pray in Acts for? I don't think I actually have it there, but they pray, let us continue to preach your word with boldness. Let us continue to do what you've called us to do and preach your word with boldness, okay? Again, remember the goal here. You're pulling out things that would hinder, that would blind you to your, the communion with God that you were made for. And by the way, this is what the Spirit wants to do. When Jesus, and he's in the upper room with his disciples, says, I'm gonna send the helper What's he going to do when he comes? He's going to, John 16 he's going to convict the world of sin, right? There it is. Let's get rid of it. And righteousness and judgment, we'll see elsewhere, he's going to comfort. Right? This is what God is very, very motivated to do. And so we help till the soil, if you will, as we know our own hearts. And it's also, lastly, uh, almost as a side note, keeps you very humble, Self-examination keeps you very, very, very humble as you are looking to your own heart and seeing there's nothing in here that's good, nothing in here that saved me, not as a result of my works, but as a result of another's works. Am I a child of the living God, which will actually let the fruit of the Spirit just absolutely flourish as you are. It's difficult to be tempted towards pride when you're constantly observing your own heart, and and being kept in the realm of humility, seeing that you are a sinner saved by grace. That's number three, helping kind of till the soil for the fruit of the Spirit to flourish. Number four, last one I have, we examine ourselves, why we do it. We examine ourselves simply to worship and glorify God because he will be seen as so much more beautiful and glorious when we do it. Uh, there's a pattern in the Scriptures when someone is confronted by the holiness of God uh, where they, <laughs> their first reaction is just to fall on their face and beg him to leave. Isaiah 6, he's in the temple of God. He sees a vision of God. He hits the floor and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. His holiness makes you immediately aware of your own sinfulness. We see this with Peter uh, and, and Luke. He, uh, Jesus tells him to go cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Peter says, we've been fishing all night. You're not really giving us a solution that we haven't tried before. They do it. The nets are filled with fish. What does Peter do? Does he say thanks? Does he say, whoa, we're going to make a lot of money? No. What does he say? Depart from me. I am a sinner. As he's aware of who he is talking to. An awareness of God's holiness makes you immediately aware of your own sinfulness. Even John, you think, John, the one whom Jesus loved, he so modestly writes in his gospel, in Revelation he sees Jesus and what does he do? Falls on the ground as dead. Right? You see a vision of his holiness, you're aware of your own sinfulness. Then when you hear the words of the gospel and you begin to look back up and see that that God who is so infinitely holy and making you so infinitely aware of how unholy you are that he says, I will send my son to redeem you and take all that unholiness that I might bring you into my family. I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There is nothing else you can do except say, who is a God like this that would look upon me, this me that I'm seeing, and yet say, that is why I sent my son, who didn't come for the righteous but for sinners." So self-examination as we see who God is, who we are, and then see who he makes us in light of the gospel. That merciful God, that loving God who would send his son makes us worship him for a love that surpasses all knowledge. An unthinkable amount of mercy being poured out over us. So we look back up to him in this kind of awe-filled worship uh, George Matheson, who's an old Scottish pastor, quoting a lot of Scottish pastors to you as of, as of late, he, he says this in a prayer. I think this, is, this gives us kind of a picture of this whole scene. O oh Lord, as long as I am apart from you, I am self-satisfied because I have no standard by which to measure my low stature. But when I come near to you, there for the first time I see myself In your light, I behold my darkness. In your purity, I behold my corruption. My very confession of sin is the fruit of holiness. Oh, divine man, Jesus, oh, divine man, let me gaze on you more and more until the vision of your brightness, in the vision of your brightness, I loathe the sight of my impurity. Until the blaze of that glory which human eye has not seen, I fall prostrate, blinded, broken, to rise again a new man in you. Amen. You see that picture. His holiness, our unholiness, Jesus' glory that actually lifts us up, doesn't keep us down. We'll look at that in a second. Doesn't keep your head down in shame and in condemnation, but actually lifts our head up to praise him for his love and his mercy and his glory. Self-examination fuels, furthers our worship. The more sinful you see that you are, when you look up, as you must when you look up, the more lovely, the more glorious he will be. You won't stay where Peter falls and where Isaiah falls, saying, Depart from me, I'm a man or a woman of unclean lips. You will rise and say, My Lord and my God, my friend, my Savior, my Father, not God who stands over me with wrath, but a Father who declares me innocent and adopts me as his very child. That's where you end when you see these things in light of the gospel. Robert Ray McShane, I'll be quoting him a lot. Just brace yourself. I think he is by far the best with this discipline, so I've got tons of quotes all throughout this teaching, says this, clear conviction of sin is the only true origin of dependence on another, with a capital A, another's righteousness, and therefore, strange to say, of the Christian's peace of mind and cheerfulness. Your clear conviction of your sin, strangely, because it turns you to Jesus, is the only way you can have peace of mind and be cheerful. So, That's what it is. That's why we do it. Thirdly, super, super, super important, the danger of it, a danger that we must avoid. And here's why I changed the title. Uh, The danger that you must be aware of is called morbid introspection. Your enemy is very crafty. Again, we talked a few weeks ago. He's not like, I'll make you an atheist. Whoops, they still believe. I guess I'll go to someone else. He'll just jump to the other side and be like, yeah, I know, totally. God's truth is awesome. Let me make you arrogant by looking at all those who don't believe it. right? So he's very crafty, so he will do this with self-examination as well. So self-examination is kind of like a sauna. I don't know what saunas really do, but this is what I assume they do. You get in there and sweat at all the toxins. That's my strong guess. But you can't stay there forever or else you will, you know, Die? I don't know. I was just told you can't stay in there forever. This is a horrible analogy. Uh, Like an eclipse. This is a better one. Uh, You know, the eclipse that they're like, don't look at it with your eyes. You'll burn your eyes out. Get those, you know, 20 cent glasses and then it's awesome. That's kind of, you know, so we need the lenses of the gospel that will keep us from morbid introspection. So here's, here's the danger. Let's look at this for a while because this is very common. There's been scores of people who have fallen into this danger. A lot of my heroes, as we'll see in just a second, actually I think fall into this danger as well. Morbid introspection is the danger. Okay, so remember what you're doing. Remember the goal. The goal is to look inward to see the sin that needs to be uprooted by the Savior who is outward, okay? So look inward to pull and look outward and repent and ask him to take it from you and forgive you of it. Here's the danger. You look inward and you stay there and you dwell on it and you think of the sliminess and the rottenness of your own heart and you begin to hear the words, how worthless. Who of your friends actually struggles with this? None. Who in your church actually thinks those thoughts, none. There's no way God could actually love you. Sure, yes, in our nice little verses that we write on note cards, he, ha- you know, he accepts you, but at the very least, he tolerates you. He certainly doesn't like you. If he loves you, it's because he has to, right? Looking down, staying down, listening to lies, never looking up. That is morbid introspection, and it is incredibly dangerous because it says, look at your wicked heart and never look to the Savior that came to forgive that wicked heart, okay? So that is the danger. Now, on top of all that, that's all just you, okay, your own heart. On top of all that, we have an enemy whose name, one of the names we see in Revelation 12 is he is the accuser of the brothers, He's one who goes after and accuses those whom have been redeemed. He calls the innocent guilty. He calls the children of God orphans. He brings his false accusation all the time. He's an accuser. He's a father of lies. He'll lie to you about who God is. Don't trust his word. Right? Think about Genesis 3. Did God really say, right? Don't trust his word. He lies about who God is, his character, and he'll lie about who you are in Christ, he'll tempt you to trust your heart, to trust your feelings, though the scriptures scream to not trust your feelings because they're constantly trying to deceive you. So, whereas the Spirit will lift your eyes, the Spirit's conviction lifts your eyes to Jesus. The devil's accusation lowers your eyes and tries to keep them down. Feeling bad about sin, feeling guilt about sin is not a bad thing, but Satan wants you to stop there. The enemy wants you to stop there and not look up to the one who came for that very sin. So morbid introspection, this danger, leads us to be just self-focused, selfish, and self-hating. A lot of selves in there. So where self-examination is meant to turn us outward to Jesus, morbid introspection turns us inward. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous 20th century preacher, says this about the difference between self-examination and morbid introspection. I suggest that we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such self-examination becomes the main and chief end of our life, we are meant to examine ourselves periodically, but if we are always doing it, always, as it were, putting our soul on a plate and dissecting it, that is introspection. And if we are always talking to people about ourselves and our problems and troubles, and if we are forever going to them with that frown upon our face saying, I am in great difficulty, it probably means that we are all the time centered upon ourselves. Or as I heard another pastor say, morbid introspection makes you self-absorbed instead of christ absorbed. So it makes you very self-focused. It leads to legalism, where you're only looking at yourself, therefore you're only thinking, what are the rules I need to follow to not feel as bad as I feel, right? You've never looked up. It leads to isolation. Uh, The Desert Fathers, a, a, a group popular in the first centuries, would go out to caves and just fight these internal battles with sin, completely removing themselves from society, completely missing the words of their Savior, where he says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil world, or the evil one in the world. Right? Not about going and just doing this internal fighting over your own heart, but rather just fighting off the evil one. So uh, Jonathan Edwards actually is, is an example of someone who realized this error because he was practicing it and realize how to actually turn to Jesus. So he he wrote seventy resolutions, which are very popular as, as kind of this uh, idea of devotion. Right, he resolved never to eat anything that makes me tired, so that I can read my Bible more. Right, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, we love those resolutions. I actually have those in my in my office. The seventy resolutions. But if you study his life, he wrote those in a time of incredible doubt. Over his own salvation, and so it was an effort for him by his own effort or by his own works to merit, if you will, salvation or favor with God. Sorry to ruin those for you, but he later uh, recognizes this. He later recognizes and said that he was he would constantly fall into the danger of introspection uh, with too great a dependence on his own strength, which afterwards proved a great damage to me. And he says, how does he, How did the light bulb go on for him? He said, the solution came when I saw a more full and constant sense of the absolute sovereignty of God and a delight in that sovereignty and more a sense of the glory of Christ as a mediator as revealed in the gospel. So morbid introspection, how can I? This heart is wicked. I guess I'll just... Make sure I eat the right things and let no other end but religion be my ultimate goal and things like that. And then he realized that was doing incredible damage. And what brought the freedom? A sovereign God and his glorious son who came to pay for that wicked heart. Okay, you see the difference there? C.S. Lewis uh, would actually, he critiqued a lot of the Puritans saying, you know, Puritans would look down and see the kind of sliminess and that's where they would stop. And he says, that's not, it's, it's not bad because it's not true. It is true. That heart is slimy. It's bad because they never go to the one that, was, that came to deal with that heart. You see that. okay? So don't keep your eyes down. Kristen uh, Wetherell, who's a Christian author, says this. So beware of introspection because it only leads to despair, but embrace self-examination because it leads to to Christ. I think that's a great summary there. So that's the danger of it. What is it? Why do it? The danger of it. And then, number four, most important, who to look at when we do it. And it's Jesus. I know I, didn't, I don't think I put that in the notes, but I, just, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Jesus, right, is who we look at when we do it. You are meant to do this in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are meant to examine your heart in light of the one who says, I came not for the righteous. The healthy need no doctor. I came for sinners, and I lived the perfect life that you failed to live. And I died the death that you deserve and give you my perfection, saying, it is finished. It is finished. We do self-examination in light of that Savior. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, says, it is better for you and me To be admiring the compassion and fullness of grace that is in our Savior than to dwell on the poor, dwell and pour too much upon our own poverty and vileness. And the guy that uh, I think gets this the best is uh, McShane and his mentor, Thomas Chalmers, actually taught him a lot of these things. So I have some quotes there. I think they're they're the most helpful as far as giving us this, this picture of how do we search. A wicked heart in light of a gospel that says you've been delivered from that heart. You've been, you've been saved and forgiven of that heart. And so Thomas Chalmers gives a, a picture here that I think is really helpful about letting the light of the gospel pour into your heart. That's actually what lets you see the sin. It's there and you're blind to it until the light of the gospel actually highlights it. And then, because the light is what's highlighting it, you know where to take it you know where to take that very sin that has just been highlighted. So he says this, "'Take help from the windows. Open the shutters and admit the sun. So if you wish to look well inwardly, look well out. This is the very way to quicken it. Throw widely open the portals of faith, and in this, every light will be admitted into the chambers of our experience.'" And the true way to to facilitate self-examination is to look believingly outwardly. Notice that. The true way to look here is to look believingly there. You see that picture. Don't just go into the slimy, creaky house of your heart. Throw open the windows and let the gospel pour in so you can see everything clearly and you can know what is being cleared out by that very light. You see that picture. And then I think the best picture by our friend Robert Murray McShane. If you want, uh, just pay attention to this part. If you haven't been paying attention, this is all that you need to hear. You've heard this quote before, but he was he was giving it this quote uh, in in the light of self-examination, in the light of doing this discipline. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. Hear this line: For every look at yourself, take ten looks. At Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, and feel his all seeing eyes settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled. With the heart ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him, and let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. Notice this last line so there will be no room for folly, or the world, or Satan, or the flesh. Every look at that heart, we spot the weeds. Take 10 looks. At your Savior and actually let beholding his glory and his beauty be what obliterates the sin in the world because there's no room for it to come in any longer literally your affections for that glorious Savior pushes out the sin that's the picture he's giving us there's no way for you to stay in condemnation self-condemnation with ten looks at your Savior there's no way for you to keep your head down in shame, listening to the, to the lies of the accuser with ten looks at your Savior, and there's no way sin can stay as it's being purged by that glorious Savior. Again, that last sentence, no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh as you gaze upon him living in the smiles of God and letting that light flood in and push out all the darkness. That's what's going to keep you from morbid introspection, and it's actually what's going to keep you from, or that's actually what's going to bring about victory and pulling out the weeds and tilling the fruit and flourishing the flowers and all that is in the garden. So that's McShane's picture. I'll give you a, a, a biblical picture uh, Hebrews 12. Notice this picture the author's painting. Therefore, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Notice the author doesn't say look to Jesus and be better. He says, look to Jesus and remember what he did for the joy set before him endures the cross. Set your eyes on him, lay aside every sin and wait. Ten looks at him, gazing upon him as you run the race with endurance. Last quote to close off this section from another English pastor, J.C. Ryle. Cultivate the habit Of fixing your eye more simply on Jesus Christ and try to know more of the fullness there is laid up in him and every one of his, for every one of his believing people. Do not be always pouring down over the imperfections of your own heart and dissecting your own besetting sins. Look up, look more to the risen head in heaven and try to realize more than you do that the Lord Jesus not only died for you, but that he also rose again, and that he is ever living at God's right hand as your priest and your advocate and your almighty friend. When the apostle Peter walked upon the waters to go to Jesus, he got on very well as long as his eye was fixed upon his almighty master and savior. But when he looked away to the wind and the waves and reasoned and considered his own strength, And the weight of his own body, he soon began to sink and cried, Lord, save me. No wonder that our gracious Lord, while grasping his hand and delivering him from the watery grave, said, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Alas, many of us are very like Peter. We look away from Jesus, and then our hearts faint, and we feel sinking. Do not look away, look up everyone look at self. Take 10 looks at him. Don't let a lie settle. Let his glory push it out of your heart. Lastly, how do we do it? So that's what is it? Why do we do it? What's the danger to avoid? Who to gaze at? Who to behold while you're doing it? And then lastly, how to do it? Uh, Again, these are practical. These are just kind of things I've thought of, not exhaustive. Just things I find helpful. Number one, uh, be self-examining in your prayer life, and I mean by this your your alone time, your secret prayer that we're going to see Jesus talk about alone with your Father who is in secret. Make self uh, make self-examination a rhythm of that prayer life, like uh, the psalmist in one thirty-nine. Search me, O Lord, try me, know my thoughts. See if there's anything unrighteous here. See if there's anything grievous here that I'm not aware of, and pull it out. Okay, so so kind of walk through. What we've seen here from Peter and Isaiah and John, behold God's glory, remind yourself of who your God is and his character and then remind yourself of who you are and then turn to 10 looks at Christ and see his glory and ask him to pull it out, ask the spirit to kill sin and then worship more fully as you know that he has. We have repentance not with our fingers crossed, right? Jesus even teaches us to pray, Tell God to forgive you. Forgive me my debts, not will you forgive me my debts. Jesus knows his Father's character. Forgive me and worship in him. So pray those prayers. Pray prayers like we saw Augustine prayed. Lest my sin make me think that I'm not sinful. Nobody likes to think, yeah, I was really wrong about that, but... Assume that you're a sinner saved by grace and beg God to open your eyes and beg God to make you more humble and beg God to make you more merciful and loving towards others. Ask the Spirit to pull out every weed and ask the Spirit to help you have a greater hatred for sin. That you would view it as a cancer, that you wouldn't just view it as as a, a cat in your house, but as a lion in your house to give you a greater hatred for sin. So do this in your prayer life. Number two, perhaps the most helpful, practically speaking, uh, being a part of the church, being a part of a community that can help you see sin that you're going to be blind to, okay? So community can help you see sins that you're, you're naturally blind to. Invite people into this. Invite people. Uh, make, be, be easy to rebuke, Be easy to confront. Be humble. That's that's all you got to do. Be humble and grateful. Don't be constantly defensive, right? Don't make it a battle anytime anybody has to tell you about your sin. Again, assume what's already true about you, that you're a sinner saved by grace, you're dependent, and actually invite people into that. Invite people into rebuking you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, says this in his book, Life Together, talking about being in Christian community. The greatest uh, psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot comprehend this one thing, what is sin. Psychological wisdom knows what need and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the ungodliness of the human being. In the presence of a psychologist, I am only sick. In the presence of another Christian, I can be a sinner. Okay, so they can help you pull out sin, help you spot sin that you... Uh, maybe you don't know is there. They can also help you navigate sin once it's been spotted. Help me, okay, help me fight this. I don't want to be quick-tempered. Okay, so you just give me a look when you can tell I'm, I'm heating up, right? They can help you navigate. Uh, okay, so that's number two, community. Be in community. Drag sin, by the way, last thing, drag sin into the light of community. It is hard for sin to stay right hidden if the light is hidden beaming on it. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Number three, develop the muscle. I have that in quotes because it's not a literal muscle. Develop the muscle of checking in with your heart. I know that sounds cheesy, but here's what I mean. When something makes you mad, don't stop thinking and just be mad, okay? Don't do that. Here's what you should do. Why does that make me mad? And then think through the possibilities. And then actually try, again, assume you're a sinner saved by grace, and then try and locate the sin root there. And then, okay, I think this is it, and bring it out and repent of it and bring it to Jesus. Actually develop the muscle or the habit, whatever you want to call it, of not just emotionally reacting and just assuming everybody else is dumb, right? but actually assuming... Humility, taking on humility and thinking there's something, if everything the Bible says about my heart is true, there's a problem here. And me being mad might be righteous, but also really, 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 really might not. Okay, so actually investigate why that is, take it to Jesus, ask him to obliterate it, and then arm yourself the next time you're in one of those situations and that sin might rear its ugly head. If you are paralyzed with fear all the time, Figure out why, because your Bible's going to tell you a trillion times, do not be afraid. Your God is sovereign. In this world, expect tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If you're expecting tribulation and you're paralyzed with fear and anxiety, read the rest of that verse, first of all, and then investigate why. What is it? Is it a a, a fear of death? Okay, let's, let's go back to the basics of being a disciple. You lay down your life at the beginning of following Jesus, things like that. You see what I mean? Self-examination lets you take it a little bit deeper. Examine things that you like, joys, things like that. Examine how you uh, use your time. I've got a McShane quote I won't read. Uh, if If you're using your time all for just entertainment and things like that, and you don't have enough time to pray or read your Bible, that's an issue. Okay, so examine that, figure out why. Number four, another muscle that's not a literal muscle. Number four, develop a muscle of looking to Jesus when you see that wicked Heart. Make your heart like a trampoline or whatever image you want to use. When you see the wickedness, be thrown back up to the ten looks at Christ. Learn to distrust your feelings. Learn to stand on the truth of the gospel and learn to preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Lloyd Jones says this The main art in the manner of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. To, uh, to have to take yourself in hand, to have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Okay, When you feel condemned, preach Romans 8 to yourself. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can snatch you from my hand, your Savior says Nothing can separate you from my love, your Savior says. Preach the truth of the gospel to yourself. And then lastly, you will grow in this. In the same way that you hear a lesson on prayer and you think, oh, my prayer life you know, sucks or whatever, and I say, calm down. You, know, you don't become an Olympian overnight. right? You will grow in this. It's the same with self-examination. Don't just take one, one look at your heart, you know, be pulled down by morbid introspection and think, I'm not going to do that again. Keep practicing, and you will grow more and more and more in this. And again, remember the goal. The goal ultimately is not legalism. The goal is not moralism. The goal is to see and behold and worship and live in the joy of your Savior as you're conformed more to look like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and then we'll pray. And we all with unfailed faces beholding, look at this, beholding the glory of the Lord. As we gaze at him, as we behold his glory, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that... uh, Lord, we would do this not just as a legalistic practice or anything like that, but because of that goal. We want affections for you and love for you and a longing for your glory to be the motivating uh, desire and and fuel of everything that we do. So I pray that it would be, quite simply, Uh, Lord, as our flesh even tries to think, I'll be awesome at this, I'll do this when I go home. I pray that you would stop moralistic tendencies and as we behold you and we uproot sin, that we would glorify you and we would worship you more and more. I pray that Uh, in your son's name, amen.